The following message is entitled, The Defining Proof of Real Faith, Part 3. This message was given during the evening service on December 18, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We continue tonight looking at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1, a continuance of verse 6, which is really an applicational set of verses based on the blessing of verses 3 to 5, where we are saved and have an inheritance and have protection, verses 3, 4, and 5. And this is the third series of joyfully suffering salvation, based on verses 6 to 9, the third series that I've outlined this epistle. Let's read it together, First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Every chapter, as I've mentioned in First Peter, deals with the concept of suffering for the faith, Chapter 1 is certainly leading the charge on that. And chapter 1, verse 6, I've already taught you, we're in verse 7 in this series. Christians are to be joyful despite suffering and trials. And the trials, obviously, are trials for the faith. That's why the proof of our faith has to be suffering that's unique to our faith. I could never say a flat tire is proof that I'm suffering for Jesus because unbelievers have that. So whatever... This joy with suffering in verse 7 that is the proof of our true salvation has to be a joy in suffering that's unique to being a born-again Christian. And the only suffering that's unique to being a born-again Christian is suffering directly cause and effect for one being saved and living for Christ, witnessing of Christ, and also um, being joyful in Christ when one suffers. So, um, when it says the proof of your faith, it's referring to everything in verse 6. Great rejoicing, despite various trials, and again, the trials have to be trials for the faith. This is a great test of faith, and this is Roman numeral number 2 then, in your note sheet where we're at. As I say every almost every sermon, the material above the dotted line or between the two dotted brown dotted lines is review. So up through letter C under point one is review and then letter D is new material for tonight. Roman numeral two is Christians are joyful while suffering for Christ is proof of saving faith. And you want to circle those five words in Roman, num num Roman, number, Roman numeral number two. Those five words, joyful while suffering for Christ. Those need to be circled. That is an entity that is a team, that is a unity together. It is joy in Christ while suffering for Christ. Uh, this is a major test in proof. It is singular, the proof of the faith. And we're going to talk about the faith this evening and the proof connected to it. Um, this is a hard pill to swallow in the American church. I think that if I uh, was to say or to teach anybody in the faith in the context of American evangelicalism today, that the proof of your saving faith is if you five times a day jump up and down on your right leg. 
And that was your proof. And you would know you're going to heaven if every day of your life you jumped up and down five times a day, multiple times each time on your right leg, holding your left leg up. I think that there would be a reason why Christians wouldn't do that. If I heard me teach that, they would probably not do that. And the reason they wouldn't do that is they think that's ridiculous, right? What's the point? And so I don't think if I taught here or anywhere that the proof of our true saving faith is jumping up and down five times a day, multiple times each time on the right leg. I don't think that would put fear and terror in the body of Christ in America. They would relegate that to the trash heap of nonsense. So whenever there is a proof that does not cause self-reflection and potentially fear, proof of salvation, we would have to assume the proof that is given in evangelicalism today is not something that's believed. But yet it's right here. This should be cause for concern in the entertainment-minded, comfortable, heretical body of Christ today because what Peter is saying here is letter A under Roman numeral 2, and I filled that in for you. Joy while suffering is the proof of saving faith, which means I have to look for joy, which is the second fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, as you know, and I have to look for that joy happening at the same time that I am regularly, consistently, and that's what verse 6 says, you have been distressed continuously in the Greek by various trials. I have to look for where I have served in the church and witnessed outside of the body of Christ and suffered for it. And if I don't have that unity of joy while suffering, we would assume the natural response to that would be a loss of assurance of salvation, a loss of peace, a feeling of desperation. What is my Christian life? Unless this proof in verse 7, which is the accompaniment or the encapsulation of verse 6, is relegated by any believer who reads this text in America to this. Jumping up and down on the right foot. This is meant to create massive self-examination. It is a proof. We're saved by faith, we're sanctified by faith, but we are proven to be true believers by tests, and this is a major test. That's why it's singular. Under letter A, joy while suffering is the proof of saving faith. Number one that we saw last time, joy while suffering for Christ is the major proof. Not singular, not soul, but is the proof. It is a major one. We could say the major way to tell a great baseball player is the number of home runs they hit in their career. We could say that's a major proof of greatness. In fact, it's probably the singular great thing that we look for and remember about great baseball players from Babe Ruth to Hank Aaron to current ones today. But we would not say that home run hitting in one's career is the only proof. We'd say it was a major proof, not the singular one. And this is the case with this here. It is singular. It is, as your note sheet says, letter A in the review, it is the proving. 
It is an ongoing proving. Dokimazo. And this term should, and you can write after the word should, cause us reflection. Cause us reflection. This term should cause us, should cause you and I to reflect. We want to desperately take some time, close our eyes as believers. The Apostle Peter is giving this to us as a forewarning of judgment coming and whether we are true believers, all true believers have various things in their lives that the New Testament teaches, especially a hunger for the word, a hunger for righteousness, as we saw in Ephesians 5, a desire not live for the world, as we saw this morning, and this one here, suffering for the faith. I have to serve regularly enough in the church to have wicked people in the church persecute me, and I have to be witnessing enough in any society so that I suffer the consequences of that light bearing when it intersects dark people. And the two ways that we suffer in a society, even in a democratic society, is it costs us a sense of encouragement as we see no one getting saved. This tasks our soul and we grieve over that, that's suffering. And secondly, when we do witness, we can face great horrors like the Indian pastor who's sitting chained to a bed in a democratic society and slandered that he has attempted to convert somebody when actually we're supposed to witness anyways. So uh, his testimony before the judge is, uh, this person that has accused me of converting anyone, I would have to say, judge, two things to that. Number one, I don't have the ability to convert anyone, only God does. But number two, I'm called to witness regardless of the consequences. And when we do that in this society, you can lose your job, you can alienate people. Uh, even in your family, when you take a stand for the word, it can cost you greatly in family, whether saved or unsaved. Disassociation, the end of relationships, and so forth. And this is an ongoing proving. It should cause reflection. We don't want to ever relegate this apostolic proving to the category of some silliness like if you hop up and down on your right leg, this shows that you're saved. We just brush that off, throw it away, and say that's absolute nonsense. We dare not do that with the Apostle Peter. Letter B, proving means you are approved, and I, you and I are approved. Approved is a good term to use for that proving. You're approved if you're suffering for Christ and having joy while suffering. This does not speak well for the massive numbers in our churches today. Larger churches especially are prone towards having individuals just pile into churches claiming to be born again. And in the vast numbers, it's just come sit, listen, and leave predominantly in the megachurches. A megachurch is defined historically. Uh, megachurches really began in the late 60s, early 70s in this country. There really was no such thing. It was unheard of to have a church of thousands. It was a unique thing for Spurgeon in the late 1800s in Great Britain to have a church of four or 5,000. That was unheard of. It was an event that would make the papers, London Times and so forth. Uh, maybe a dozen megachurches, a thousand or more in the 70s in the United States. Now there's thousands of them, and it's just a conglomeration, a mass of people who are coming into these huge churches claiming to be born again, and they come, they sit, they enjoy the event, and then they leave and go on with their lives, feeling comfort that they are saved because of profession. Profession doesn't prove. Remember, saved by faith, sanctified by faith, 
proven by works. And this is a major work right here. The work of joy with suffering in verse 6 is the proving of our faith. So letter C, as we saw, trials with joy is the best possible Christian maturity evidence. Trials with joy is one of the best possible Christian maturity evidence. It's so simple to assess that. And remember their unity. I I don't want to separate these out and say, okay, well, I'm happy all the time. It's my personality, so I know I'm saved. No, that's not actually joy anyways. There are unbelievers that can be happy. This is a joy that's a product of being filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says. It's a supernatural joy that unbelievers can't have. It's peace in the midst of the storm. It is almost synonymous with peace. Peace comes next in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace. It is an upliftment, and the word joy assumes suffering. It is not an upliftment because I watched a good movie. It is an upliftment because I'm walking with Christ in a very dark world, and I'm paying a price for it. That's why with the first fruit of the Spirit, which is love, it's always in a context of not loving like the world. And we read that this morning, that love in Luke is not like loving somebody who loves you in return. It's loving your enemies. And so there's always a contrast that makes the fruit of the Spirit supernatural. It is not love. Unbelievers can love somebody that's nice. It is loving someone as a Christian who actually sees you as an enemy and hates you. And joy is supernatural. It's not just feeling uplifted and happy because I went to a good restaurant. That's not spirit-filled joy. It is joy in the context of suffering greatly. And that's why it's a continuous thought in verse 6. Really, verse 6 defines what the fruit of joy is, the second fruit of the Spirit. It is joy even though now. So we don't want to ever take joy and just separate it out, as I was saying a moment ago, and why don't I say because I'm happy all the time? That's not joy. Nor do we want to come over here and say, well, I yelled at my boss and I got fired, so I know I'm a believer because I suffered for the faith. No, that's not suffering that's Christ-like. So it is Christ-like joy as I am suffering directly for serving in a church and facing hostility, serving and evangelizing in the culture and facing persecution. It may not be the persecution that sends me to jail, but it's the persecution that Jeremiah faced when nobody listened. Anger, hostility, rejection, mockery, or consequences where I am in relationships in society with family, friends, co-workers, and those relationships become abrogated by those who hate us for standing for truth. That's where we look. And letter D then tonight What he is saying is this is the proof of the faith. It's not your personal faith, it is the faith. It is objective genitive here, as you note she says, meaning the faith. It is the object of the proving. We are looking and analyzing our lives for spirit-filled joy while suffering for Christ, and when we see that, this gives us, God doesn't need this, this gives us the approval, the assurance. Proof there would be a partner term with assurance. Assurance is confidence that I'm saved. If I don't have this type of suffering in my life while having joy, then I can't possibly have any assurance that I'm a believer. 
So it's very important we realize we're not talking about um, personal faith for tomorrow's problems. That's not what Peter's talking about with the word faith. He's talking about faith as letter C says. Let's define it. Faith equals is not referring to the genuineness of the doctrinal content of the reader's faith, but to the genuineness of their personal response to the message of God, the gospel in other words. The faith refers to then, on the blank lines, conversion, true conversion. That's what the faith is referring to. Again, faith is not referring to the genuineness of the doctrinal content of the reader's faith, but to the genuineness of their personal response to the message of the gospel. This is the faith. One way to interpret this phrase then would be this way, in order that the testing and proving of the genuineness of your saving faith. So proof of your faith, you can write this down under letter E, is best to be interpreted as the proving of the genuineness of one's saving faith. This speaks to two groups, as the New Testament does. There are always two groups in the church. Both claim to be saved. There is the claiming to be saved by faith alone group that is not saved because it's a disingenuous and false conversion. And those that claim the same saving faith and are saved. Two passages help us to understand that within all local churches and in the universal body of Christ, there is this conflict between these two groups. And this really sets up for us how we understand that we would suffer as believers. I've had many people over the years that have quit church and quit serving a church because they didn't receive thanks or they caught it and they faced trouble. At the, you know, I, I'm not serving anymore. I'm leaving the church because I was serving and I, and I had bad things happen to me. That happens because these two groups are there. In fact, there's three groups in every local church. There is the saved by grace through faith fake believers who are apostate. There's a saved by grace through faith believers that are true salvation but are in rebellion at this point in their life in any given time. And then there's the saved by grace through faith group that is growing. Saved by grace through faith, false conversion, rebellious conversion, godly conversion. And so when people have quit over the years, they were assuming there's only one group in any local church and that the local church is bad if there are bad people there claiming to be saved. See, So the idea has been, well, I'm not coming, I'm not staying anymore because the people are bad in church. I had somebody in my office years ago said that. I'm not serving anymore. I was treated badly when I served. But if we understand scripturally what's going on, that there's only one small group in any local church that is a godly and growing, and the rest are either saved but rebellious or not saved, pretending to be saved and apostate, then the godly Christian, when one serves with one's gift as a growing Christian, is going to inevitably suffer in a local church by the other two groups. It's going to happen. Can't get away from it. First John chapter 1 shows us this. First John chapter 1. The two groups that John is pointing out are apostates versus um, true believers in 1 John 1, verse 6 that we've seen before. This is nothing new to you. This is by way of reminder. Uh, 1 John 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, so we would be anyone who claims to be a fellowshipper with him. That's a 
That's a term that refers to true belief, fellowshipping with him. How do we know that? Because of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. There are four fundamentals of true believers that are mentioned in, in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, I think it is. We're not going to go there. It's uh, when, the two, when the new converts were born in the new church, they were obsessed with the apostles' teaching, communion, breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. This is uh, fellowship with him is a mark of a true believer. It's a way of saying that I'm saved. I have united with Jesus Christ. He's converted me. He now lives within me through the Holy Spirit. And I'm in koinonia. I am, he and I, are united in this purpose of transformation. I yield, he empowers. That's the idea. So when it says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that is a claim within the Ephesian church, which John was pastoring at this time. Historically, we know this from his protégés who tell us later, like Polycarp, that John was in the Ephesian church. And uh, so in the Ephesian church, if we say that we have fellowship with him, now notice, and yet walk, life path, walking in darkness, we lie, and do not practice the truth. That's not a backslider. That's an unbeliever. Okay, He's not talking to backsliders in this passage or in this epistle. Uh, no true believer lies and permanently rejects the truth. No true believer permanently walks in darkness. The point John makes is that salvation is transformational. The contrast in is verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, here it is. Not only do we have fellowship with him in verse 6, all true believers do, but now you have fellowship with one another. This We're united to help each other to grow. So the fake believers claim in verse 6 to have fellowship with him. They walk in darkness. They lie. Who are they lying to? To God and to other believers. This is creating conflict within every local church. It cannot be avoided. The theology of those who attend a local church is key to our understanding why we suffer in local churches. And this is something, frankly, that's just not known in the body of Christ in America. I mean, just imagine an entire ball game mentality. Tens of thousands pouring into a stadium-type church to hear a sermon, see a drama, sway to the music, maybe open the Bible or it's up on the screen. This is wonderful. What an experience. I've enjoyed myself. Now I'll get back in my golf cart outside the front door, which will take me a mile through the parking lot to where my car is. And then we go to a restaurant. Now we live our lives. This is wonderful. Well, this is just great. This is not the conflict that is real. That's fake. And even if it's a large church like MacArthur's where people start to serve in that church, that's not heaven on earth. That's the same three groups. Saved by faith apostates, saved by faith rebels, saved by faith godly. This is how you prove yourself to be a believer. A major evidence of that is I have to serve enough as a Christ-like growing Christian in a local church with my gifts so that the suffering automatically manifests itself. I have never gone to jail for the faith. I've never lost a job suffering for the faith. But I have faced persecution from the two groups that are inevitably in every church, the apostate and the rebellious. And they unite together because they're marked by darkness, verse 6, lying and not practicing the truth. Now, one could say, oh, but they're backsliders. Well, look at verse 8. He gives us further information on this false group. If we say that we have no sin, how could any even a backslidden believer say that? 
This is a great question when dealing with a rebel believer in counseling. And I've done it before because, as you can realize, a rebel believer who's truly saved is going to behave like an apostate who isn't. So what you do is you ask the question in verse 8. If the person's in rebellious and you can't see the hearts, you don't know whether they're a, a tear among the wheat, you don't know whether it's a person at this point in their life, they're in rebellion. So what do you do? You say, verse 8, are you currently a sinner? And if the person says, no, I'm not a sinner, why are you offending me like that? Then we know they're an apostate. Okay. We have state of being, present active indicative. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving us, and the truth is not in us. How could a true believer, even a rebellious believer, not have truth in them? So then he goes back to the true believer in verse 9. If we confess our sins, which means we're admitting that we're sinners, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us. Forgiveness is how you repent. So if we confess and repent, confess and repent are both in verse 9. Uh, you have the proper manifestation of a true believer. And it's always in that direction. Confess, then you repent. You don't want to repent and then confess. You don't ever want to say, I'm repenting of all my sin. I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah, it's this. I confess it. No, you start with confession. I witness that I've done this, first part of verse 9, and now I'm asking forgiveness. He's righteous to forgive. The forgiveness implies from Luke 17:3 that I'm asking him to forgive me. I'm repenting. Confess and repent. This is what true believers do, which means for us to continuously confess our sins and to seek forgiveness is evidence that we recognize as true growing Christians that we're sinners. And we're bad at it. Or we should say we're good at it. So verse 6 sets the forum. Everyone falls into verse 6, those who have fellowship with him. Then he starts itemizing. The end of verse 6 is the false believer. Verse 7 is the true believer. Verse 8 is the false believer. Verse 9 is the true believer. Then he goes back to verse 10 to the false believer. If we say that we have not sinned, now it's perfect active indicative. It's not only that I am not sinning currently, but I've never sinned into the past, which means I never repented of sin when I got saved. I only asked Jesus to save me. Nobody ever showed me I had to repent of my sin. So I've not been a sinner. I was not convicted of sin at conversion. That's a false believer. Now we make him a liar. This is what apostasy is. It, it creates an antagonism with God and with Christ. It says, I'm not the one in error here. You are. No rebellious true believer would ever say that. And his word is not in us. This goes back to chapter 2, verse 3 as well. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's another monumental proof. I can't renounce the Bible and claim to be a true believer. Then he goes into the issue again in verse 4 of chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments. This is state of being. This is walking in darkness. Don't know the Bible. Can't be bothered obeying it. It's irrelevant to me in my life as a liar. Again, the truth is not in him. So this is how he goes. This is the battle we face. This is why when we say, well, I don't know how I could possibly place myself in a context in a democratic evangelical church where I would face suffering. You can't in churches where we just go and sit. We have to be imparting in sacrificial service in the church. We have to be witnessing and confronting in our families. We have to be doing the same in the work environment as opportunity allows us. And when we do those things, when we sacrificially serve in a righteous way in a local church, 
we face the two-pronged attack from the rebel Christian and the apostate. This confirms that we are true believers when we have joy when that happens. And then we witness and never see anyone that gets saved. Or as Jolim and those who have gone with her go door to door. And thousands of tracts. And I told somebody recently that we pass out hundreds of tracts as weather permits. And this person outside the church said to me, well, what's the result of that? I said, nothing that we can see. That's suffering. And we have joy just in the process of evangelizing. And we're like Jeremiah as we grieve over the fact that nobody's coming to Christ in this community. That's suffering. And yet if we're depressed when that happens, we're not being proven to be true believers. We want to rejoice. I passed out this. I put it on the door. We gave tracts. And I rejoice that I could suffer for Christ because everyone rejects it. That's suffering. And yet I rejoice that I had the privilege of doing this. Jude establishes the theology of what a local church is. And this is what people don't understand outside the context of churches like ours. What are you talking about? How could we possibly suffer in a democratic society? This 1 Peter 1.7 doesn't apply to us. Yes, it does. If we just simply see that the church is outnumbered in the body of Christ locally, every good church will be outnumbered two to one. The godly minority outnumbered by rebels and apostates. So now in Jude, which is the epistle of apostasy, and he was going to write about salvation and contending for the faith, which implies suffering, contending earnestly, verse 3, literally in the Greek means to fight hard for the faith, which if you're fighting hard for the faith, you're suffering, you're facing an enemy. But then he switches to internal discussions concerning church in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. How do we know he's referring to the church? Crept in. This is absolutely key. We don't creep into society. The Bible tells us that we're to go into all the world. We don't creep into society. That's not how we are. Creeping in unnoticed refers to individuals who come into the church. And how could they be unnoticed? They're unnoticed because they have the terminology. This is a given. This is from the New Testament on. This is nothing new. The only thing that's new today is the preponderance, the overwhelming preponderance of fakes that are in the church today, which 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us is an evidence of the last day's church because apostasy just takes over everywhere. But this creeping in verse 4, creeping in unnoticed, uh, it means to settle in alongside. It's a good word for this creeping in unnoticed is to creep in is to be stealth. Uh, it's the only New Testament uh, time the word is used to slip in the door, to snuggle next to, to come aside, to pick up the hymnal, praise Jesus. It is the masquerading, creeping in unnoticed. Who is it unnoticed by? God? Of course not. It's not unnoticed by apostates. It's unnoticed by those that are true believers. We can't tell. It's the wheat among the tares or the tares among the wheat, Matthew 13. And this is a very bad situation that has always existed and always will. So when I attempt to tell people that are on their way out of the church, and I've said to them in the past, this is the way the church is. No, this is not the way the church is. Church should not have hypocrites and unloving people. It should not have bad people in the church. I've said to them in the past, I said, you don't know the scriptures. These are really bad people here. 
In the rest of this, there's 47 character qualities he gives of apostates. In how many verses? 25? And really less than that, he's starting with verse 4. This is just a massive negative treatise. Just a bomb going off that says, this is what is always going to be in local churches. And who are these people? These aren't backsliders, those who've been long before and marked out for condemnation. They're hell-bound, but they creep in pretending to be believers. Ungodly persons turn the grace of God into licentiousness. I'm free to sin, that's the idea. And of course, as we see today, deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So what they're denying is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we know today the gospel has been ravaged. We know that whenever a church or a church system renounces repentance and lordship as part of the gospel, we know that that is a church system that's been ravaged by Satan and apostasy has taken over. Eric was telling, us, telling me yesterday that he heard one of the best sermons he ever heard from his pastor the previous week, and he said the man just brilliantly itemized and expounded on salvation at Christmas, salvation is repenting of sins and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. And I just made a comment. I said, well, he's going to suffer for that. Because in an apostate church, evangelical and fundamental church age, and it doesn't matter, by the way, whether it's evangelical or fundamental, and I hope you know the difference between those two, historically. Um, we're fundamentalists because we believe in the doctrine of separation. Evangelicals, by and large, do not believe in the doctrine of separation, but now an evangelical means nothing. It could mean wah-wah-woo-woo. We don't even know what an evangelical is. When a John MacArthur's an evangelical and then Joel Osteen claims to be an evangelical, that completely waters down the term to mean nothing. But historically, an evangelical is one who believed in the gospel but believed in fellowshipping with apostates. And a fundamentalist, historically, was one who believed the gospel and believed that we're called in the Bible to separate from apostates when they become known or if church systems are apostate. So they creep in unnoticed because we don't initially see them. Over time, you start to, start to recognize these are individuals who are non-transformational, born-again Christians. That's impossible. Now realize if they're licentious in verse 4 and they're denying our only master who bought them, that there's going to be trouble afoot in the church, isn't there? You can't get away from it. Notice verse 6. He talks about other fakes. Angels, they apostatized from heaven. And then Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, hell-bound Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way these men, in the same way these men, verse 8. And now he starts to really lambast false believers. They believe in visions and dreams. Is that going on among evangelicals today? Uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, somebody was telling me, I don't know whether it was in the church or outside of it, there were m much concerns being raised about her because she's starting to believe in visions and God's talking to us. That's very serious. It's right there in verse 8. Um, and defiling the flesh, rejecting authority. I rebel against all authority. Where is this? Again, verse 4 is the hinge upon all these things being hung. And the hinge in verse 4 is crept in unnoticed. So they're rejecting authority in the church. And they're reviling angelic majesties. And they revile, verse 10. This is gossip and slander in the church. So you stand for truth. You're going to get people that are going to start talking about you behind your back and attack you. In verse 10, it can't be helped. 
And things which they know by instinct. I believe this in the church. I don't care what they're teaching or he's teaching. I know by my own instinct this is wrong what's being said. This is how apostates operate. They act like animals. Woe to them, verse 11, and then so forth. So back to 1 Peter 1.7. So this explains everything. And this, in a sense, is good news. You say, oh my goodness, how could this possibly be good news? Because a true believer can worry about, needlessly worry about 1 Peter 1.7. Oh my goodness, I'm not going to jail. and I try to witness and I'm serving a church. and I don't think I'm suffering and I don't know if I'm saved. No, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. There's always going to be when you serve with your gifts to other groups in every local church. It is impossible to avoid. You will face friction, attack, resistance, rejection of authority, church authority. Hebrews 13, we're to obey our leaders if they're teaching the Bible correctly. And what you're going to face is this pushback. And that is why Paul told believers in the Ephesian church in Ephesians to stand firm. The idea is you have to stand firm as they push against you in the church. And this is the distressing of trials in the church. So the only way, and we need to write this then down under letter E, the only way I can have consistent assurance that I'm saved as a professed believer, because profession just puts me into one of those three categories, right? Apostate, rebel, or true believer that's growing. So the profession only puts me in one of those three. And the mere odds are that potentially since the godly one, the true believer that's growing, is the third group, the potential is, especially in this day and age, that I'm actually in one of the other two groups. The only assurance I can have is a massive hunger and desire. Sue was talking to our kids about this yesterday. A hunger and desire to serve the Lord in a local church. That this is absolutely foundational to this proof here. Why does it prove your faith? Not that you serve. Apostates serve. Rebels can serve even and hide their rebellion. It is not that service by itself is a proof, because unbelievers can do it. Though certainly if I'm not serving with my gifts, that's a testimony of not being a believer. So many of the proofs are shown when I don't do them. Not necessarily when I do, because fakes can do many of the proofs. Many, many could say, I want God's will and be an apostate. And so it's when I refuse to do God's will, that shows that I'm an apostate. So it's not the service. It is the sacrificial service that brings opposition, standing for truth in church, in society, with family. And we suffer for this greatly. This, yet joy, not joy in the suffering, it's joy in my salvation, as verse 6 tells us. I'm grieving over here, distressed, crying over this terrible suffering and grief, but over here I rejoice in Christ. It is serving in the church that brings suffering that is the proving ground. This is a serious issue. You see in the Old Testament that the prophets were continuously preaching the word and confronting apostate Israel. They were called to preach. They were executed. They were jailed. They were run out of town, proving their true message and true faith. It's exactly what we want to look for in a local church. I have got to, before the rapture, cease to be 
a come sit and listen believer. I must get my life right with God first, repenting and walking in holiness so that I can serve. And then as I serve, I'm bracing for impact. It's automatically, I'm going to get in trouble doing what's right by those who creep in. And when that happens, a smile comes across the face and I say, thank you, Lord. I rejoice in my salvation and my serving while promoting truth assures me that I'm a true believer. This is the proof. So it's our response to the message. The faith is the re response to the gospel. Everyone who professes salvation is not saved. The faith, my faith personally, must be proven only by myself in the context of a local church and in the Great Commission being followed outside the church. Number two, and lastly this evening, this is one of the major reasons we experience trials, to test the faith. This is why we receive the trial. The suffering comes along. If we never had any problems in church, everyone was righteous and wonderful and always growing unto perfection, and everyone you witness to gets saved and drops to their knees in the middle of Ewing Avenue as you're witnessing to them, and family, all the family, saved, unsaved, carnal, apostate, they all roll over, praise Jesus for the words that you've shared with us today. Then our service and our evangelism would not prove anything. Apostates don't do this. They don't serve with truth, and they don't serve with evangelism. They distort everything. And their goal is to creep in unnoticed, which means they don't want to make enemies. They're going to slide in alongside. I don't want to be an enemy. I need to be a fake. I'm a spy. So I have to look and act like a believer. It's the bold ones, the godly ones who say, I'm standing for truth regardless and I'm called to speak the truth in love. And come what may, I will rejoice in Christ and his salvation as I see suffering, as I serve with truth in a local context and I'm experiencing great suffering doing that. This has approved my faith. And John Stevens, at the end of the day, desperately, consistently needs to know, through assurance, to have the confidence that I'm a born-again Christian. Because the greatest horror that I have ever felt or thought of in my life is being, ending up in hell thinking I was saved, falling forever in darkness, tortured, burning with fire, never able to plant one's foot, feet on solid ground, no one to talk to, and it's for eternity, there is no time in hell. And regret, the gnashing of teeth and the grief, the regret, I had so much time to check my faith out, I had so much time to analyze with biblical proofs, why did I ignore the call to self-examine? I don't want that. So I don't trust myself. I have to look to my own life. And just for me, it's my faith, not yours. I need to look and see, am I suffering? And do I have joy in Christ? While I'm crying over the grief of this trial, do I rejoice that I'm saved? And my answer is yes. I've suffered greatly for the faith in and out of the church. I've had joy in my salvation and grief. There have been times when I didn't have joy and I was depressed and that was sin. The suffering was for nothing, but I've repented. And then I find great happiness, and I'm a born-again Christian. Christian, he saved me. 
and open up my heart to the gospel. I'm so grateful for that. But yet I don't trust myself. I need to continuously be proven that the faith that I have chosen is real by when I continue to sacrificially serve in the body and evangelize outside the body. I have confidence. And the backslidden believer will never have that assurance because the proof does not exist. And as Hebrews 10 then tells us, a truly rebel Christian who is willful against Christ will fall into extreme terrors of hell, desperately terrified, affecting them emotionally, physically, circumstantially, mentally. They, they, they start to unravel as they doubt everything about their conversion because they're in rebellion. And that's what God wants to use as a first step to drive a rebellious Christian back to the Lord. We'll continue with number two next time in 2023. On January 1st, while the whole world is getting over their previous nights drunk and partying, we'll gather together, Lord willing, the evening of New Year's Day and enjoy a great fellowship facing 2023 with the exciting prospect of having growing assurance the more I serve. You can understand then that this is not a call to serve. This is not a call that everyone must be doing their duty, find a spot and fit in. It is the call that comes from the Spirit to want to serve and having joy when I serve and I suffer. That's the calling. Everybody potentially serves, all three groups in a local church at various times. It is a call of the godly that I hunger to serve. I don't have to be told to do that. And when I do, I'm looking for serving with truth and love and still suffering the consequences. And I'm looking for joy in my salvation while that happens. And that solidifies assurance that I'm in the faith. Thank you, Father. Dismiss us with your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.